As far as island paradises go, Bali is about as good as it gets. Everywhere you go, there's music, art, poetry, and dancing. There's a festival for pretty much everything. Even their funerals are lively events. The farms are organized into these terraced fields, so the countryside looks like a patchwork of art. Of course, there's plenty of tasty food to eat. For a long time, Bali was forgotten by the world in time. Today, it's a mecca for tourists seeking a trip to the past. So let's take a trip through the streets, rainforest, and volcanoes of Bali as we travel through time and talk about the colorful and interesting history of one of the world's most unique islands and find out why its people say it isn't a place. Bali is a state of mind. Some may say it's unbaliable. I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat the podcast that delves into dad jokes that make producer Pete cringe in different cultures of the world through time while exploring the different attitudes about death and food. If you love history, good eating, and fascinating stories, then I have a great show in store for you. So make sure you stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, TheTailoredHemp.com. Legal in all states, high-quality CBD can be used in creams, capsules, gummies, and flour, whatever your preference. While I'm not a doctor and this isn't medical advice, I do stand by the soothing effects of CBD on aches, pains, and sleepless nights. Contact thetailoredhemp.com with your questions and requests for your CBD today. Now, on with the show. Only 37 miles from the Indonesian island of Lombok, Bali is an island with an intriguing story of mixed cultures and intertwined nations. Though no artifacts or records exist that would date Bali back as far as the Stone Age, it is thought that the very first settlers to Bali immigrated from China in 2500 BC and managed to put together an evolved culture by the Bronze Age. That was around 300 BC. This culture included a complex, effective, irrigation system, as well as agriculture of rice, which is still used to this day. This system is called subak, and is much more complicated than your traditional rice paddy. It involves canals, tunnels, and water temples to create an artificial ecosystem. Today, these subak cover over 49,000 acres of Bali. To put that in perspective for our listeners that don't use the metric system, that's about 76 square miles. These rice-loving travelers of Chinese and Malaysian descent arrived using the maritime trade routes of the Southeast Asia through Taiwan and the Philippines, and they cultivated rice as they went. I always thought rice was a fun meal to have. If you've ever been in the mood to eat a thousand of something, hey, just make yourself a pot of rice. So. Based on what we know from archaeological research, Bronze Age people of Chinese and Vietnamese descent from the Dong San area of Vietnam arrived in the 3rd century BC and they brought bronze, copper, and iron. These first sites were in the northwest of Seket near what is now Gilimano and also inland at Beyond. Evidence from these sites indicates a population of fishermen, hunters, and farmers. Their graves even show evidence of metallurgy and that they had 
by this stage acquired the skills to cast and smelt copper, bronze, and iron themselves. Civilization started a little late in Bali, but they managed to catch up pretty quick. For the first few centuries leading into the Common Era, Bali's history is vague. Different travelers and traders came and went from all over Asia and Oceania. I'm sure that they all left a piece of themselves behind in Bali as the years went by. The lasting influence for much of Bali came from Indian traders who arrived around the first century AD. These mainly peaceful merchants also brought Hinduism. By the 5th century, a Hindu kingdom had been founded in Bali, and Bali's history as a whole was populated with many different groups of people. Many of these diverse communities lived self-sufficiently and independently from each other. Indonesia claims to be a mix of some 250 ethnic groups, and the Balinese have their own special genetic blend of Chinese and Malay, with traces of Polynesian and Melanesian mixed in the Indian and Javanese. Among the diverse groups that arrived in Bali after the original Chinese settlers were a group of only some 400 who arrived from the village of Aga in East Java around the 8th century. They settled in this remote mountainous area around Gunu Agnun, and their communities prospered by growing rice, teak, and the giant banyan trees that are held sacredly by the Balinese today. Bali Ag Society reached intact and to this day decry and resist most forms of outside influence. With little or no contact with the outside world, their arcane ways are still evident in their original colonies of Jambuhan, Taro, Tigalalang, and Batur. Their societal structures exist on rigid and ancient rules, and visits by outsiders and tourists can still be dawning in occasionally harrowing experiences. They remain a tough and hardened society, far removed from much of Bali that most people know today or think that they know today. The topography of the island, therefore, gave way to two forms of living, the people of the mountains and the people of the sea. It is the gentrified southern and coastal people with their civilized Japanese customs and easy natural resources that's given Bali its overwhelming identity. From the 11th century to the 15th century, Bali endured as a Hindu kingdom while the rest of Indonesia became Islamicized or Christianized. By the 11th century, the influence of the Japanese with their then predominantly Hindu beliefs was being felt even more and more. Initially, they came peacefully and shared reciprocal political and artistic ideals. This union of the two islands, Bali and Java, was cemented under the rule of Javanese King Eralanga, whose mother moved to Bali shortly after his birth. At the age of 16, Eralanga fled to the forest of western Java when his uncle lost the throne. When the throne was reclaimed, Eralanga returned and became one of Java's rulers. When Eralanga's father died in, oh, about 1011, he moved to East Java, uniting it under one principality and anointing his brother, Anik Wanzu. Anik Wanzu was the ruler of all of Bali. 
Following this time, there were many reciprocal political and artistic ideas that were formed. Javanese language, called Kawi, became the aristocrat's preference among other Javanese traits and customs that were worked into Bali life. This informal connection allowed Bali to remain semi-autonomous for the next 200 years, until King, and I'm going to have to really try at this name here, Kirtan Gawa conquered Bali in 1284. King Kirtan Agawa ruled over Bali from his home in Java until he was assassinated in 1292, only eight years after he began. Without their king across the strait, Bali was once again liberated for a time, until 1343 when it was brought back into Javanese control by the Hindu-Javanese general Gahamada. Though Kirtan Agawa's reign was short, his son, the great Vajaya, founded Mojopai dynasty. Which was lasted, which lasted from 1293 to 1520. I, I have to laugh because there's just so much language barrier here. So bear with me. The influence of this dynasty reached as far as the Malaysian Peninsula, and the very eastern extent of it is now the Republic of Indonesia. As Islam swept through Indonesia in the 15th century, many Hindus fled to Bali, where Hindu and Indonesian culture and customs mixed with an interesting fashion. Around the same time, the Hindu Mojopai dynasty began to falter and ultimately disintegrate into feudal substrates. The last Javanese Mojopai king hightailed it to Bali, taking with him many of the court's intellectuals, artists, and priests. This wave of culture and spirituality formed the basis of Balinese culture for what we see today. As a rich and cultured heritage. Now, the Mojo Pai bequeathed Bali many of the features of this present-day society, from the style of royal rule to its architecture and the structures of its temples. It also brought the principles of the caste system, which are adhered to even today. For those of you who are not familiar with the caste system, it's basically this belief that when someone is born into a specific role in society, from the impoverished to royalty, and were, that person is destined to remain there and pass that lifestyle on down to their kids. Now, I know this may seem a bit strange to non-Hindi people, since we believe that anyone can improve their life through hard work, but keep in mind, Hinduism is based on the belief of ethics, the cycle of life and death, and karma. So, though it may sound a little unfair to those who were born into poverty, some forms of the caste system believe that if one wanted to improve their lot, they would have to live a good and pure life and hope it would be enough to be reincarnated into a better societal role in the next life. Now that doesn't sound so bad, right? Eventually, if someone were to purify their life so much and make it all the way up the social ladder, they would be freed from the reincarnation cycle to live in enlightenment. Kind of like nirvana without those long hours of meditation and fasting. It'd be a little counterproductive to talk about fasting on a podcast that focuses on food, though, wouldn't you think? So, the Javanese. They weren't the only ones to make their way to Bali. Marco Polo in 1292 and Vasco da Gama around 1512 
were known to have reached Indonesia, but the first European to set foot on Bali was credited to Dutchman Cornelius uh, de Hotman in 1597. He, like many others since, was captivated with the island, and when it came time to leave, it's said that it took him almost a year to round up his crew. If you've ever been to or even seen a picture of Bali, then you know why. The Dutch were more driven by financial gain than cultural pleasures. Control of the Spice Islands, also known as Moluccas, was a higher priority than the beauty and charms of the island. The Dutch, while not taking any forceful control, established trading posts in Bali instead. Dutch colonial control expanded across the Indonesian archipelago in an early part of the 19th century. This included an increasing presence in Bali. By then, Bali's independent kingdoms we know today had taken shape. The Dutch were intent on adding the whole of Bali to their colonial ambitions set about its capture. It took separate and simultaneous wars from 1846 to 1849, and the actions of various Balinese kings using the colonizers to advance their own local ends for the Dutch to take control of even just the north of the island. It was not until the Wars of the Rajas from 1884 to 1894 that the Dutch finally extended their rule to the east. Kara Awesome and Lombok fell in 1894, and finally the Raja of Yanar, in a ploy where self-interest took precedence over the island's sovereignty, was convinced by the new lords of Ubid to make peace with the Dutch. The south of Bali refused to yield to the Dutch rule, and while some of the old guard preached peace, they were overruled by a group of headstrong young princes who defeated the Dutch in a surprise attack. Needless to say, the Dutch did not take this lightly, and a larger force was dispatched to Bali to make a stand against the stubbornly resistant and proud southern kingdoms of Tan Buan, Klun Kung, and Badong. And yet, the Dutch still seeking justification for an all-out assault. In 1904, a Japanese schooner struck a reef near Sanur. The Dutch government made whatever essentially unreasonable demands for compensation and was refused by the Raja of Badong with the support of Tabuan and Kung Kung. The dispute over the rights to plunder the cargo ships presented the Dutch with this reasoning needed to launch a new attack. In 1906, the full force of the Dutch Navy docked up at Sanur, initiating the Badong War. After blockading the southern ports and having a various or after having various ultimatums ignored, the Dutch mounted a large naval and ground assault and in September they marched on the palace of Baudong. At the palace, the Dutch were not met by expected resistance, but instead by a silent procession with a Raja at the lead dressed in white cremation garb, armed only with a crease. This is a, a crease. It's a snake dagger of its, of that it's like a wavy blade. I'm sure you've seen one in movies before. It's so uh, Indiana Jones-ish, I guess is what I would say. And 
Anyway, let's get back to the story. He was followed by all of his supporters, and his march stopped 100 paces from the Dutch, and then a priest plunged the crease into his chest. The rest of the procession followed suit and proceeded to either kill themselves or others in the procession. All who, am, all who had voluntarily entered into the rite known as Poo Tong, sensing certain defeat at the guns of the heavily armed Dutch, the noble Balinese decided not to suffer the ignominy of defeat and surrendered, but rather than have their death rites applied and took part in a ritual mass suicide. Despite the Dutch pleas for them to surrender, this Poo Tong ended in the deaths of an estimated 4,000 Balinese men, women, and children. The same afternoon, a similar event took place at the palace of Pin Kutan. The Raja of Tabanan and his son surrendered, but both committed suicide two days later in a Dutch prison. The last remaining regency, Loon Kong, brokered a peace deal. Not surprisingly, the atrocity of the Pupu Tong garnered worldwide condemnation, and even a member of the Dutch Upper House of Parliament labeled the scandal the extermination of a heroic race. Holland's image as a responsible and even-handed colonial power was seriously compromised. The deal that had been brokered with the Loon Kong fell apart when the Dutch attempted to make monopoly control of the opium trade. Riots erupted in Guyanar, and the Dutch settlement sent the troops back in, forcing the Raja to flee to Kloon Kung. I think I said Kloon Kong actually earlier. Kloon Kung. He attempted an all-out attack initially by himself, armed only with a ceremonial crease, believed to wreak havoc on the enemy. He was brought down by a single bullet. His six wives, seeing the death of their beloved, turned their crease on their self and committed suicide. They were then followed by others in the procession coming out of the palace. With this last poo tong, the Dutch could finally claim victory over the island. Dutch rule over Bali came later than in other parts of East Indies, such as Java and Maluku and it was never just as well established. Despite the long road to colonization, the Dutch period lasted only until Imperial Japan occupied Bali in 1942 for the duration of World War II. After Japan's Pacific surrender in August 1945, the Dutch attempted to return to Indonesia, including Bali, and to reinstate their pre-war colonial administration, but Indonesia and Bali resisted this time armed with Japanese weapons. One of many heroes of that time was wartime resident leader Colonel Gusta Nura Rai, who spent the war years tormenting the Japanese. With a name like that, he must have been quite some guy. His death in an almost suicidal attack considered the final Pupu Tong is another footnote in the, histor- in the heroic history of Bali and its warriors. The tentative federation led by Sukarno and Muhammad Hatta attempted to consolidate the 17,000 island nation. The road to peace and prosperity was not without its troubles. As you can imagine, 
Sukarno, who had been a revolutionary, moved from democracy from democracy to autocracy and on to authoritarianism. Man, get your tongue around that one. Regional and factional problems led him eventually in July 1959 to dissolve the assembly and assume the full dictatorial powers. Increasingly, Sudokarno was becoming pro-communist and even began to receive aid from communist sources. He made a little secret of his desire to make amends for centuries of Western colonization in Southeastern Asia. Many think that he might have been driven by more than this than any communist sympathies. In 1963, he went as far to make a stand against the formation of the Federation of Malaysia, seeing it as a puppet for the continued British rule. He was ultimately unsuccessful and failed to bring the disputed now Malay Islands of northern Borneo into the Indonesian Republic. The economic cost of this failure of the fledgling economy coupled with his alienation from the West and resulting lack of financial support when it was most needed created hyperinflation, which lasted throughout the early part of the decade. The resulting social unrest in his failing health weakened his iron grip on the country. Matters came to a head on the night of September 30, 1965, when eight senior generals were taken from their houses supposedly by a group of communist renegade army divisions, and either quickly executed or taken to Hamlin Airport where they met the same fate. The later justification for these actions were taken to prevent an army-led coup did not convince very many of the citizens. A certain General Shaharto convinced the other surviving generals to plan their own counter-move, and in a, surprising, in a surprisingly easy manner, regained control of the military faction. Sukarno stayed in power, but Shuharto had emerged as a major political figure. Sukarno and Shuharto. I'm, I'm going to try really hard not to get those two confused, so stick with me as you normally do. The backlash against the communists in 1965 after the attempted coup is one of the bloodiest in Indonesian history. Bali was the scene of some of the worst atrocities where mobs rounded up suspected communists and sometimes just clubbed them to death. As many as 500,000 suspected communists or ethnic Chinese were massacred in Indonesia with about 100,000 in Bali alone. At the time, 5% of Bali's population. Sukarno who had enjoyed unprecedented levels of popularity, was on his way out. Finally, in 1966, Sukarno fled the presidential palace and only nominally remained president for about another year. Under Suharto, the military gained far-reaching influence over national affairs. Over the next three decades, until his undoing by the economic crisis of 1997, Indonesia enjoyed a period of sustained prosperity, even despite Shaharto's embezzling autocracy. Fortunately, the economic meltdown had an upside. The resulting riots and protests brought an end to Shaharto's military-led rule, and in June 1999, Indonesians enjoyed their first free parliamentary election, since 1955. Indonesia achieved a tentative peace under the provisional democratic government headed by President Megawati, daughter of 
Socarno, she inherited political instability in the economy in the crisis, but she addressed corruption and the military's human rights dirty record. However, her rule only lasted until 2004 when she was defeated by former military general, oh, now, here's a name for you, Susi Lobambang Yudo Yonao. You want me to try that again for you guys? Sosi Lo Bambong Yudo Yonao, otherwise known as SBY. Thank God. His coalition government, based on his moral code of honesty and anti corruption, has come out on top in the elections of 2009. The advent of tourism and travel after the Great War brought new influences and greater worldwide attention to Bali. The island became home to anthropologist Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson, and artist Miguel Covarrubias, I'm not familiar with him, and Walter Spies. Musicologist Colin McPhee, in his book A House in Bali, fostered the western image of Bali as an enchanted island at peace with themselves and nature. Celebrity visitors such as Noel Coward, Charlie Chaplin, Barbara Hutton, and Doris Duke helped make Bali synonymous with the latter-day Garden of Eden. It was about the same time that Pandit Nehru, the reflective and scholarly first Prime Minister of India, described Bali as the dawn of the world. So let's change subjects a little bit here. Since Bali is a Hindu country, I thought it presented a good opportunity to delve into the interesting Hindu burial practices since they're quite different from the ones that we're familiar with. As Hinduism believes in reincarnation, death is believed to be something that only happens to the body, not the soul. When the body died, the soul departs, leaving behind an empty husk. The soul is believed to be true representation of an individual and the body is only a vessel. So, cremation is a very common practice in Hindu countries, including Bali. That's not to say that there aren't Hindus who bury their dead. It's just rare. The cremation usually takes place only a day after the death of the person, and the ashes are then collected. On the fourth day after the cremation, the ashes are scattered into a sacred body of water, like maybe a river or a lake, or a different place of spiritual prominence. Mourners will dress all in white as the body is taken to be cremated, and the priest will lead everyone in prayer and sing hymns. The body is presented in an open casket and adorned with flowers. On the 15th day after the cremation, the family celebrates the life of the departed with a feast. Since it's about this time that the spirit of their loved one will complete, will complete the trip to the afterlife and in, at that time is either reincarnated or liberated. This is pretty typical Hindu funerals. But Bali isn't exactly known for being typical, right? We, we've learned this already. In Bali, they practice a very similar but unique burial ceremony called Nabin. Like most Hindu funerals, it's a, it's a cremation ceremony that preferably takes place within a couple of days after the death. This ceremony is unique from Hinduism as it's a ceremony to release the soul of the deceased from the body rather than to destroy the remains. By releasing the soul, it can enter the afterlife or the upper realm and join the cycle of death and rebirth. Bali Hinduism 
believes that there is a competition between evil residents of the lower realm to capture these souls and the proper cremation enhances the chance that it may reach the upper realm. Though it is best for the bodies to be cremated quickly, this can be expensive, so multiple deceased will spend some time in an interim state of being buried in the ground. The family of these dead then pull their money together and hold a mass cremation ceremony for the community. They dig up the bodies, they wash them, they dress them, place them in coffins called a bade, to, and that Bait is then burned in the ceremony with a body. These coffins typically come in the shape of an animal, such as a bull or some sort of mythical animal, uh, which are often called patulingon. Patulingon. So, you may ask, why bulls? I don't know that I can really say, but Hindus do hold the bull as a sacred animal. It's kind of like the lamb in Christianity. The coffins also come shaped as temples. These are called wada. The ceremony begins and the family and friends say their last goodbyes. They carry the corpse to the cremation grounds dressed in traditional Bali attire and accompanied with Bali gamapan music. Fun fact. If the procession passes through a major road crossing, the coffin is rotated three times to confuse the evil residents of the lower realm. That's pretty cool. I like that. At the cremation grounds, the last rites are given, and final hymns are recited, and the funeral pyre is lit. While the corpse burns, Balinese music teams play the Balig Inger. That's a specific Balinese music. It's a uh, like a battle song symbolizing the soul's fight with the evil underworld to reach this worry-free upper realm. Twelve days after the cremation, the families collect the ashes, fill it inside a coconut shell, and carry it to a nearby ocean or sea, and return the remains back to the elements. That's really pretty cool. It's a ceremony that celebrates the ascension of the soul into the next plane of existence with wishes of farewell and safe travels. In some ways, it's not too different from saying goodbye to your cousins after a family reunion. After the cremation, the community celebrates together with drinking, dancing, and feasting. I can only imagine what decadent foods they chow down at these feasts, surrounded by the comfort of their friends and their loved ones. But I did manage to find a local bally dish that I'm sure you're going to enjoy. Which brings us to my favorite part of the episode. When I think of Indonesia, blue oceans, sunny skies, and undisturbed miles of white beaches comes all to my mind. With that picture, I began my search for the recipe to share with you guys. With the abundance of seafood, I was drawn to fish, and for your pleasure, I'd like to present to you my version of Balinese ikan bakar. This is a nut and crust fried fish. Pick two pounds of white fish fillets of your choice. I use snapper that I'd actually caught a couple of days earlier. Set the fish aside. In a food processor, add two ounces of cashews, two ounces of olive oil, half of a large shallot, one teaspoon of ground turmeric, one teaspoon of ground coriander, one teaspoon of salt. Grind until it's consistent. Lay the fish in a container big enough for each piece to lay flat, and spoon the peanut mixture over each piece and coat evenly on both sides. 
cover and put in your refrigerator for at least an hour. I mean, you can do it overnight if you really want to, but do it for at least an hour. Using the flat, using a, a flat bottom pan. Now, if any of you guys who have followed me long know that my favorite's always the iron skillet. So add a couple of teaspoons of oil and let that heat up for a few minutes over medium heat. This is important because it's going to help you get a good char on your fish. Gently lay the filet in the hot oil. You may cook more than one at a time, but make sure you don't crowd your pan. Flip the fish once after it's been cooked halfway. While your fish is cooking, mix a quarter cup of soy sauce, one tablespoon of unsalted melted butter, one tablespoon of olive oil, one teaspoon of fish sauce. Set that aside. Move the cooked fish to a plate and spoon the serving sauce liberally over the fish and you're ready to eat. Well, I think we did a good job of laying Bali to rest. I've been your host, Scott Parrish. I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode in learning about the history and culture of Bali. This show is made possible by listeners like you. I'd like to give a special shout out to Chef Enzo, who follows us in Paris, France. Thank you, Enzo. And as well, I'd also like to say thank you to Brooke Witcher for Parts Unknown. She just recently started following us. Your support drives the show, and we enjoy hearing from all of you. So please, everyone, leave us a five-star rating, a comment, and a like. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Dying to Eat Podcast. Let us know what topics you'd like to hear. Find future and past episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to drop us a like and don't forget to hit that follow button and stay updated for the next episode. Until next time, stay lively.